What is discipleship? Discipleship is fundamentally following Jesus, following him according to his word, following him for who he is. It is personally laying down one's life and following the Lord. So in the book of Acts, we see discipleship change from personally following physical Jesus on earth to a new uh, sort of version of things, a new reality comes. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out. There's a crowd there, and of course, people are asking questions about the phenomena that's happening, and Peter stands up and by the Holy Spirit preaches the first message in the, after the resurrection of Christ and the kingdom of God. The kingdom has now come in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter addresses Joel chapter 2, Psalm 16, 2 Samuel 7, and finally, Psalm 110 which is where we are. And Peter's going to quote Psalm 110, but before he quotes that passage and applies it, the final application to the crowd, he makes a declaration. And this declaration is that this Jesus God raised up to whom, to which we are all witnesses. Of the 544 plus people who were personal witnesses of the actual, real, historical, resurrected Jesus, many were still around and None had ever retracted or recanted their testimony that they have seen Jesus. God raised up Jesus. The one you killed, God raised him up. And we are all witnesses. Witnesses are the testimony of that century. Peter says he makes some statements. His statement is that Jesus has fulfilled two realities which explain the events of Pentecost. Having been exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus is now in an exalted place of honor, glory, responsibility. Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended. We saw that in Acts. But Jesus is also exalted. If we want to know what happened to Jesus after he disappeared into the clouds in Luke, sorry, the end of Luke, then you turn to the book of Revelation and that's where you see the exalted Christ. The final stage of his glorification is his exaltation, exaltation to God's right hand in heaven. And that is where Jesus will remain forever. Peter makes another assertion. He's received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has fulfilled, again, two realities that explain the events of Pentecost. Not only has he been exalted to the right hand of God, but God the Father has given him the Holy Spirit to distribute. That's an amazing thing, the great gift There's nothing greater than the gift of the Holy Spirit. Can you think of anything greater that you could have in your life history than the Holy Spirit of God? Is there anything that even matches, even comes close? So Jesus is in charge of distributing the Holy Spirit, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not New Age crystals, not self-help motivational pursuits, not political alignment. None of these things will give you the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus will give you the Holy Spirit and God has given him that task and that position. So these two great facts, these realities underlie the events of Pentecost. They explain the events of Pentecost. They are the rationale for Pentecost and they are the dynamic for the events of Pentecost. He's poured forth this which you both see and hear. So Jesus is exalted the right hand of God. We've chosen that first reality. And the question is, is this just something for the book of Acts? Is this just something for the day of Pentecost? 
Is it central to Christianity or is it merely peripheral? Is it just sort of a, a sideline thing? So we start considering it. First, we looked at Acts 5, where Peter, who is giving his sort of uh, back pocket outline of the gospel, you should go there, Acts 5, 30 through 32, and just if you need to know what the gospel is, there it is. It's put right there. And Peter says that Jesus was made a leader and a savior, a prince and a savior, and his exaltation to the right hand of God is core to his outline that he gives. It's a piece that's part of the steps. We look at Acts chapter 7, Stephen, as he's being martyred, and he's in the, the process of dying. He's about to go to be with the Lord, and before he leaves, Jesus opens heaven. And there is Stephen just gazing right into heaven. Stones are falling all around him, and he's just so taken with this sight that he has never seen before. No one has ever seen before. It was a unique event in the history of the world. And he said, I saw Jesus at the right hand of God. He says it twice. I saw, it says, the narrative says, heavens were opened and he saw, and then they have his quote, I see. It's like, Two sentences, one on top of the other, each stating the same thing. Jesus at the right hand of God. He's standing for Stephen. We looked at, we've looked at Ephesians 1 about having the eyes of your heart enlightened and understanding Christ's exaltation in Ephesians 1. Again, is the first real thing that Paul prays for in his prayer. He doesn't pray that the Ephesians will you know, live a holy life or be good families or things like that. He'll do that later. He says you can't be those things unless you have the foundations of Christianity motivating you. And one of the core foundations of Christianity is Jesus' exaltation and the grace and power that comes from that. He's at the right hand of God and this is core and we should have our hearts to see this, our, our understanding, our spiritual wisdom and understanding to know these things and appreciate these things and glory in these things and worship these things. Ephesians 2, Paul applies it to the reality that by grace we were once dead and by grace God made us alive. You were dead, but God made you alive. By grace you're saved. That's the definition of grace. And then we were raised with Christ. We were made alive with Christ. We were raised with Christ. And he says we're seated in the heavenlies. And the book of Ephesians, by the way, is a book of the heavenlies. Starts out with the heavenlies. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing God has in the heavenlies in Christ. And the heavenlies are there throughout the book. Um, our lives are fundamentally lived in heaven or with reference to heaven. But we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul describes it as a fact. I could chatter all around it, but I don't know that I could ever hit the mark on what that means. You just have to live it and know it. Seated with Christ. It's a place of position and recognition and acknowledgement on who we are and what we are. We then looked at a Philippians where it says, have this mind in you which is in Christ Jesus. Again, is the exaltation of Christ peripheral central to Christianity? So far it's central in all these passages. In Philippians chapter two, there is this New Testament ethic. We are to have this mind in us, in us which is also in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he was as much God as God as God, form of God, and he became in the form of man. He was as much man as man as man, except sin uh, accepted in that situation. And Jesus left heaven through these steps, became a man, became a bondservant, and humbled himself to the death of the cross, the true obedient son. 
Therefore God highly exalted him, gave him a name above every name, the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow, heaven, earth, under the earth. There's not any creature in the universe that will not be bowing to Jesus. And by the way, everybody's taken with aliens in our day. Um, This is your answer to them. I don't know if there's aliens out there or not. You know, I I can't say. Well, I can, but (laughs) I'm not going to say it to them. What I will say, which is the most important thing, is whatever life form is out there in the universe, we know there are angels. We know there are principalities and powers. Christians know a whole lot about the things that are going on out there, but the average person isn't going to hear that. So you just say to them real simple. says, the Bible is very clear that whatever life forms are out there, they are going to find their relationship to God in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. So if some alien comes to you and talks to you in the night, and we know some people, Gwen and I know some people, some of you here know the people, person I'm talking about, believes that, that she's talking to uh, uh, alien spirits. It's a, it's a demon, of course, but and we kept trying to tell her, well, ask, ask this, this alien, quotes, about Jesus and see what you get. Come down and says, always try to <clears throat> diminish Jesus, say something negative about Jesus, replace Jesus. It's just demonic stuff. But here's what you can say to people and have a conversation. If there's aliens out there, then they are going to find their relationship to God, their existence, their reality in Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow to him, no matter where they are. So that's what we've done in the exaltation of Christ, just seen as it's central or peripheral. And this morning, we are going to look at Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord to be with us as we open this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we just recognize you are the great God who has made everything. Whatever is in this universe is a closed container of everything you've made. No matter how big it is, no matter how extensive it is, no matter how teeny the the dots are, the pixelated dots of existence and reality, no matter how large the structures you've made from them. Lord, you are the creator of all things. No matter what lives, no matter what's inanimate, what's animate, uh, what principles of physics are in operation, Lord, all of them come from your hand. And you have taken the stuff of this universe, the uh, quarks and atomic particles, and you brought them together and you have formed human beings. And you've given us your spirit of life. And Lord, we come to you as that. We come to you as humans made in your image, made by you. Every one of us was conceived, and when we were conceived, you were there. You were there mixing the gene pool exactly what you wanted. And so we praise your name, that we are in your image. We are answerable to you. We are responsible to you. Um, It's our place and privilege to recognize you, acknowledge you, fear you. Praise your name. Glory in you. Trust you. Live unto you. Lord, these are all the things and more that belong to being in your image. And Lord, thank you that you brought Jesus into this world and he died and rose again. And in those great events and that activity of Jesus, he has redeemed humanity. And Lord, in that he's making a new humanity in his image to populate a new heavens and a new earth forever. 
Lord, these are great things. These are the things that we hope in, that we live in, that we trust in. So as we come to your word this morning, we just pray you would clarify things that need clarification for us. If any of us here just have some ambiguity on something, and these passages will clarify. Lord, just do that. Um, Lord, if there's any uh, that uh, just have a need to have you, just meet with them and, and fill their souls just with the glory of the things talked about, any of them, any part of them. Lord, do that. If there's folks that are sad, make them cheerful in, in a real way. Your joy, not, not their lack of it, but your joy would be made full in them in a real way. Sadness can live alongside your joy. Lord, if there's any that are heavy, any that uh, have been off in the weeds, Lord, gather us together this morning. Let us have that sense that we're here as one body of believers. We're not here as a bunch of individuals sitting around in our own little unique space. We are here together as part of your great body. You've never envisioned us as individuals. You've never envisioned us as anything but part of your body together with millions and millions and millions of other believers throughout the ages. So Lord, just bless your word this morning. We ask, uh, Lord, by grace you made us alive and by grace you keep us. And part of it is as we look into your word, you just, by your Holy Spirit, bear witness to the truth. And we ask you to do that this morning for everyone. In Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians, if you've then been raised up with Christ. Now we went through Colossians, I don't know, a year or two ago, some parts of it. It started out as a filler because Chris was sick and ended up more than that. But you may remember back then that when you, when you read a letter in the New Testament, always try to get its historical circumstance. Historical circumstance is always important to writers and perspectives. Paul is writing to this little town, Colossae, that's up in the high mountains in the middle of modern-day Turkey. There were two other places around there, Laodicea and Hierapolis. Probably, most likely, I think, that the letter to the Ephesians was the letter to the Laodiceans. And so this letter to Paul, to the Colossians in particular, was probably written with the assumption that they would be reading this larger, more general letter called the letter to the Ephesians, that they would have both of them. They're both very similar. Um, they're both some of the most similar you know, New Testament letters you'll find. Um, they both have the same general terminology perspectives. But the letter to Colossians has been sort of, would you say, tailored for their needs. Colossae was one of those places that was on a road, a uh, uh, sort of the, you know, the, the road the goods and services would trade route that would go through. And there was always people going in and out. It was a busy town. Um, and people were coming through with all kinds of opinions about spirituality. And what was going on in Asia Minor at the time was the beginning of what was known as Gnosticism, which is simply a combination of Greek philosophy of the day, Neoplatonism, with Christianity and trying to blend the two together. But at Colossae, they also had this little added attraction of Judaism thrown in the mix. So there you are, sometimes uh, kids will come over our house and they'll start making cookies and I look in the blender. I'm on keto so I can't stick my finger in there. But before, I'd get my finger in there and get some of that cookie dough. But you watch as they'd throw the ingredients in and blend it all together, right? 
And uh, so that's what was happening. They had their little spiritual blender and they'd throw Christianity in and they would throw uh, Neoplatonism in and they would throw a little bit of Judaism in, mix it all together, and that was their brand of Christianity that was happening and being promoted uh, at this little town in the mountains, secluded away from almost the rest of the world other than the trade route. Uh, in Colossae. And so Paul is writing to them, and it's important that you understand that when you're reading his letter, because then the letter starts to make sense. Because you're like, Paul, why are you saying this? Then you transition to this. Then you transition to this. Because he's addressing true Christianity, the false philosophy, and the, uh, the, the wrong appropriation of Judaism. He's answering those three things. And so it's like, well, which statement is answering which things? It's really helpful. And and sorting the letter out. I really recommend this letter. If you get off in the weeds, I always tell you, just open Colossians and read it. It'll set you straight. It's a great letter for setting you straight. Simple letter, four little chapters, and just you get the basic gospel presented there. Now Paul says if you've been raised up with Christ, he assumes that you're in touch with the things he's written previously. Paul did not design his letters to be read a verse at a time over a period of a year. He designed the letter to be read all at once, right? We tend to read it in little spaces, which is fine, but uh, it's good to read it all at once, to get the sense of this whole letter, because Paul says things later. He assumes you, you know, picked up on what he said before, and now you're going to apply it. He may even assume that you had read the Ephesian letter and had the larger picture and framework that's put into that letter. So he says, if you've been raised up with Christ, it has background to a statement. It's appealing to something before. So I'm gonna do something, let's see if it works or not. If it's not working or I feel like it's not working, we'll speed it up. But I wanna go through a brief selected guided tour of Paul's reasoning in this letter. Now, you can take a tour of a city. You can go to Rome and you can take the castle tour or the Roman ruin tour or you can take the food tour. Okay, there's all these different tours that specialize in different things. And so we're going to take a tour here of Colossians that specializes in the background that Paul has given as if you have then been raised up with Christ. So we'll start with Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This is an amazing statement. It almost is an echo of what Jesus said expressly to Paul. You're going to go to the nations and turn them from darkness to light from the power of Satan unto God. So Paul writes, for he, Jesus, rescued, or God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul is explaining the nature of Christianity. We tend to sometimes simplify things or become sometimes too simple or simplistic as it were. And we need to be careful because we will miss the richness of the gospel. Here, a Christian is someone who was once in the domain of darkness. Every one of us here was born in that domain. You were born in Adam. You were born under wrath. You weren't born neutral or with a clean slate and then committed some sins and got, you know, got the wrath of God. You were born guilty in Adam. Romans chapter 5 is so clear on that. We all were born with Adam's inherited record and Adam's inherited heart. And the first time we actually personally sin, we're just simply checking the box. Yep, I'm a sinner. I've personally ratified my sinnerhood. 
But we are also born under the power of Satan and the realm of darkness that dominates this world. And if someone doesn't believe that Satan is alive and well in the world, we'll just turn on the TV and, and go to the channel that says, what is a woman? Or how many genders are there? Now, the things that, you know, five years ago, we would have thought, well, who would ever ask that question? That's so stinking obvious. I mean, whatever. And, and now we have a world that's confused on that. People who go to Harvard and Yale are confused about this. Satan's alive and well. All that stuff all is just Satan's fairy dust. And that's why these supposed wise people can't even get male and female right, can't even get you know, genders correct. And really, we should not be using the word gender because it is just, it's their word. It was a word originally from grammar. It was never used until recently to describe this sexual orientation apart from your biological sex. Anyway, the world's confused, so it's under darkness. And when God saved us, he took us from that realm of darkness, that place where Satan just led us around. You can read about it in Ephesians 2, the companion letter. And he brought us into a kingdom. Now, what does that phrase kingdom mean to you? Do you think of Disney? The kingdom, what do they call the kingdom? I forget. I just saw a little show about it. It could be that kingdom, which is a fairy tale, or it could be a real kingdom. 200 years ago, there were still a lot of kingdoms around. Now they call them despots and dictators. Used to be they were kings and queens. A kingdom, a place in which there is rule and authority, and there's an individual who sits on a throne. And that throne designates him as the one who has the buck stops there. The final seat of authority, the final place where power is extended. The kingdom of his son. So Paul opens this letter and he wants us to understand that our salvation is about being translated from darkness to a kingdom. A reign of the beloved son of God. That's its definition. And so when Paul says, if you then be risen with Christ, he's going to assume that you have read that. That you can appreciate that and you can understand in a moment as he goes on to talk about Jesus being at the right hand of God, that that is going to make sense to you because he's given you some background. Now, if you were an Old Testament person, and remember, Judaism has been thrown into the mixing bowl at Colossae, they would have a perspective about the messianic king and kingdom, the reign of Messiah. And Paul starts his letter out. He's only in midway through chapter one and he's saying, your salvation has occurred in this domain, this realm of the reign of the Christ of God. Jesus is presented up front, first off, as an exalted messianic king. Well, Paul goes on to say it's this messianic king has a deeper identity. He's a messianic king for several reasons, but part of it is his deeper identity. Remember, so Paul is not only addressing Judaism, but he's addressing the Greek philosophy, and the Greek philosophy basically said, well, there's this God who's up here and unknowable, 
Then there's this physical world that we exist in, and in between is the Logos and, and this realm of the spirit world. And in between God and us, there are all these layers of spiritual reality and all these spiritual beings that are sort of in charge of it. I think Mormonism has some of that. But, uh, and then the, 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 the new Christianity, the progressive Christianity at Colossae basically said, you know, Jesus is just one of these intermediate spiritual beings. He's close to the top, but he's just one of these intermediate spiritual beings. And so Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image, the Son of God's love is the image of the invisible God. He's not a spiritual being. He's not some intermediate intermediary between the unknowable God and the physical world. He is that God. He's the image of that invisible God, and he's the firstborn of all creation. He's not somewhere in the middle of something. He's at the top. He's the firstborn. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Jesus isn't one of these beings. Jesus created the entire universe, and principalities and powers are part of it. However you want to arrange them, the Bible just gives you a general statement about them. But if someone thinks, oh, okay, I'm going to arrange them and give them names and get all weird, Paul says you need to stop doing that. Because they don't matter. Jesus Christ is the one through whom every spiritual being, every spiritual principality, every spiritual power, everything in the created order was made by Jesus. Here is the world of creation, and here is God, and here is Jesus. Uncreated, created. Jesus is here. Everything has been created by him and for him, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is a glorious Christ. There's a song we used to sing at our Bible study, O Glorious Christ. We haven't sung it in a long time. Where do I got to put that order in for that, for that song? It was a good song, certainly at the time. He's a glorious Christ. He is before all things. He is first in regard of all things. He's not the firstborn because he came into to, uh, existence at some point in time. He's the firstborn because he has the right of the firstborn. He's always existed. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the Jesus into whose kingdom we have been brought. Paul goes on to say he's also the head of the body, the church. He's the author of creation, but he's also... The head of the body. See, some people tend to think that, well, you know, religious leaders are the head of religious institutions. Well, Paul says, no, that's not true. Now, there's a lot of religious, worldly religious institutions out there where that is true. But they aren't from God. You see, in God's world, there's only one body of Christ. It consists of all believers of all ages People try to deny that, and they say, oh, there's the local church. Well, of course, every local church is an expression of this body. We are space-time beings, and so we find expression. But when you look at the church as a whole, and the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians clearly identify a global concept of the church. He is the head of the body, the church. 
The body is the church. The church is the body. You can go to church this morning or you can go to body this morning. Which, how, do, how do you want to phrase it? And he's the head of it. And there is no other. There is no other because as we've talked about before, there is no other who could accomplish what it takes to run the show for 2,000 years or more and bring people to heaven holy and without blame. It's his church. It's his people of God. And he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, Paul goes on. Not only is in his essence as to his person, the son of God's love, the eternal son, he is also the one who has accomplished redemption. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn as the head of a new humanity. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks all about that. And it's crucial to eschatology, by the way. When you read 1 Corinthians 15, around, starting around verse 20, and Christ, the, you know, who's the last Adam, there's a first Adam and a last Adam, it's talked about in that chapter, but Christ is, as the, as the first fruits, he's the first fruits of the new head of a new humanity, and he's the one who a few verses later takes this kingdom that he has been establishing and working and building and weaving together for 2,000 years. And at the end of the age, he returns. People are raised from the dead, and Jesus takes that kingdom and presents it to the Father. So Christ as the last Adam is integral to eschatology. Paul puts those together. He's the firstborn from the dead because he's the first to rise from the dead in that new humanity that we are now a part of so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. Christ is the head. And see, what goes on, if, I don't know, I see, I used to be in New Age Spiritism before I got saved. And when you're in it, it's just, there's all this chatter about all these spiritual things. Everybody's going, ooh, and ah, and, and really taken with them. Maybe some of you experienced or seen it from the outside. All these just people just talking about all these silly spiritual things in the end. They give them names, they do this and that. And that was going on there in, in, in the first century. It got really heavy in the second century and almost took the church out from the second to the third century. But you have to just say to them is just stick with Christ. You're talking about being spiritual. Well, you can't do that apart from Christ. You're talking about leadership. Well, you can't have leadership without Christ. Christ is the head of his church. The firstborn from the dead. He will come to have the first place in everything. Here's how you know somebody's a Christian and know that somebody is speaking for Christ, speaking by the Holy Spirit, speaking for God the Father. Because they will always have Jesus at the top of every list that there is. Always. And if you don't see Jesus at the top of every list, move on. Because they're not from God. It was the Father's good pleasure for, for all the fullness to dwell in him. I read a different version of the Bible, so sometimes I kind of stumble over this stuff. I keep thinking the old version I've had for 52 years. Uh, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. You want to be filled up with God? Where do you go? Where do you go? Do you go to the cup of water? It's really not even water, it's dirty. Or do you go to the spigot and there's a big water tower up top? That's the one you go to. That's Jesus. The fullness of God is in him. Just open the spigot. Get underneath and drink. That's how you get spirituality. That's how you know God. 
It was God's purpose, God's eternal purpose, that in the God-man Messiah all the fullness would dwell. And that through him God would reconcile anything that needs reconciling. Again, Paul is sort of speaking to generalities. People have all these ideas and he's just trying to say, okay, I can't pick apart every idea that somebody gives me. But I can issue a general statement that answers all of them. And it's simply this. That if there's any creature in existence that has any moral relationship to God, then they must be reconciled through Jesus Christ and the blood of his cross. That way you don't have to deal with each little argument of somebody's made-up version of things. Because remember, he's, Paul's going to talk, on, talk later on about just all the uh, just imaginations of men that are going on. So here's how Paul's answer. It gives them general, blanket-covers-everything statements. And whether things on earth or things in heaven, whatever you can come up with, Jesus is the reconciler. Colossians 2, 8 through 10, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception and a tradition of men and the elementary principles of the world. Have you ever seen people that they're just sort of caught up in talking about God, talking about spirituality, and you, 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 you try to interject, well, you know, turn them off their circle and get them off the circle and get them over to, to Christ, and you can't do it. They just stay in that circle. And they're captive. A lot of Christians or professing Christians get caught up in all these fads of religious philosophy that just drift through the country. I mean, the internet just lets it come through and, you know, as fast as it comes through, it leaves. So thankfully it leaves as fast as it came, but still there's all these fads of theology and opinion and some famous statement by somebody. I just don't even listen to them anymore. I used to listen to them get frustrated. I'd think, oh, what's that person saying? No, why are they saying that? They shouldn't be saying that, yeah. I was like, I don't even listen. It's just not worth it. Just read the Bible. Through philosophy and empty deception. Empty deception. Philosophizing instead of going to the scriptures. Instead of the revelation of God that is authoritative and clear and true and you can hang your hat on it, you can live by it, you can take it to the spiritual bank, you can take it to heaven. They get into the ideas of men. And they start taking up things like, I don't know, Elementary principles of the world, just tradition. Tradition that's meaningless to God. Whether it's proto-Gnosticism of the first century or New Age Spiritism of the 21st century, Paul says, don't embrace false spiritualities and don't get caught up in the circle of their empty and endless reasonings. Because in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Again, a blanket statement. You want to talk about this? You want to talk about this spirituality? You want to talk about that spirituality? You want to ask a question about this version of Buddhism or this version of something else? I I can't deal with each one individually. Paul says, I'm just going to give you one answer. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in him bodily. And he's the head over all rule and authority. 
Colossians 2, 11 and 12, and in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So in the previous verse, Paul was addressing the proto-Gnostic philosophies that were taking root in the church in Asia Minor. Now Paul is addressing the other ingredient thrown into the pot, the Judaism. And the Jews wanted the believers to be circumcised. They wanted to read the book of Galatians and see all the things they wanted to do and why. And Paul says, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. A spiritual circumcision. Now the Old Testament talks about circumcision of the flesh versus circumcision of the heart. Jeremiah in several places, just God says, circumcise your hearts. A spiritual circumcision. Now, the old covenant could not get you with heart circumcision. Couldn't do it. It was external, it was outward. As I've always mentioned, when you think of that old covenant, think, yeah, it's got the, the laws of God for God to govern a theocracy, a kingdom on earth of physical people with all of the dynamics of a, of a state, of a nation, and all that has to go on. Got to get your trash picked up. I mean, that's, that's part of a nation state. And so God sort of addresses some of those things. But that old covenant could never give you eternal life, could never raise you from the dead, could never justify you, could never forgive your sins ultimately. And it certainly couldn't circumcise your hearts. The challenge of the old covenant is not law versus grace. The challenge of the old covenant is the inability to save versus the ability to save. The inability to write on the heart versus the ability to write on the heart. The inability to enable you to keep God's commandments versus the ability to enable you to keep God's commandments. So Paul says Christ has come and in this messianic kingdom there's now that circumcision talked about in the Old Testament about the heart, an operation on the heart. The salvation in Jesus operation operates on the heart. The old covenant only operated in the flesh. That's all it could ever accomplish. And that's why it failed. It failed because it was essentially and systemically incapable of saving anybody. So there's this removal of the body of the flesh, that is sin, Romans 6, 7, and 8 is what Paul is referring to here in the circumcision of Christ. Now he says the circumcision of the heart is represented in baptism. This is what baptism represents. You are going under the water and in union with Christ, dying to sin, dying to old Adam, dying to the old man. And you are coming up from the water and rising to newness of life with a new heart. That's what it represents. In itself, it can't confer it. Only faith in the Holy Spirit can confer it. 
but it is a symbol of the realities of the new covenant. Buried with him in baptism. In this baptism you were buried and in this baptism you were raised. So whatever baptism is, it certainly represents these two things. Being buried with Jesus and being raised with Jesus. Colossians 2.13, and you were dead in your trans- transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh and he made you alive together with him. Made you alive. Do you all think back the point in time when God made you alive? You knew you were dead. You were brought to the point where you knew you were dead. There was a big time in your life where you didn't know that you weren't alive. You just thought you were you. You may have had religious interpretations or atheistic interpretations. I was an atheist, so I had atheistic interpretations of life. Not much to it. I am whatever I am. I'm a big blob. So get on with living or whatever. But then God brings you to a point where you realize you're dead. You're spiritually incapable of coming to God, of knowing God of following God, of doing what you know to be righteous. We all have the basic righteousness of God in our hearts. Over time, some of us stuff a rag into that conscience so much that we lose a conscience. You can have a, you know, a conscience that's been seared as with a hot iron. But most people have a conscience. Tells them that there's right and wrong in the universe, that the universe is morally aligned, at least we are in it. We were dead and God made us alive. 2.14, he canceled the certificate of, of the debt that was against us, the old covenant. He took it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. See, the old covenant is over. Everybody wants to talk about Israel, you know, becoming a nation. I'm like, the old covenant is gone, folks. Ephesians makes it abundantly clear what is intended by this brief phrase. Ephesians 2, read it. Old covenant's over done away in Christ. The idea that Israel is a nation that we would call the people of God is just doesn't have any foundation anymore. See, it'd be like saying, you know, hey, I'm a a citizen of Prussia. You go, what are you talking about? Prussia doesn't exist anymore. Oh, new news for me. I can't be a citizen of Prussia because Prussia doesn't exist. Prussia can't give me citizenship. It can't confer anything on me. And so it is with the old covenants, done away in Christ. He's taken it out of the way. 2.15, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he made a public display of them and he triumphed over them through it and here again is the reign of Christ. The cross of Jesus, at that cross, he defeated spiritual principalities and powers. And whatever principalities and powers may exist, they've been defanged and they've been dethroned. Jesus did that. And there was, in heaven, as it were, Jesus led a victory parade. Just like the Romans would do when they would win a battle, they would take the commander captive and take him to Rome and lead him through the streets of Rome, and then eventually kill him. So that's what Jesus did with the principalities and powers. And one day he's going to wrap it all up when he comes back. So Paul makes some sort of applications of this. Here is the gospel. 
And so he says, first of all, because, you know, that, that old covenant law has been taken to the, out of the way, has been nailed to the cross, therefore don't let anyone act as your judge in regard to food or drink or festivals or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, someone says that's not the seventh-day Sabbath. I'm like, Paul make, doesn't make that kind of qualification. Someone who doesn't want it to be there does. But Paul doesn't make that qualification. So when folks start talking about the Sabbath, is it continuous or not? I'm like, ah, that whole thing's been nailed to the cross. And don't ever be judged by it. And don't let anybody judge you by it. Don't let anybody bring you into bondage. Don't let anybody make you think that you should be doing these things because they're mistaken. The old covenant that enforced these things, established these things and enforced these things is done. These things are a shadow of what is to come in Christ, but the substance belongs to Christ. As New Covenant Christians, we no longer operate in Old Covenant types and shadows and symbols. That's what they were. They were types and shadows and symbols. And Paul puts them all in one hopper here. Now, he's not talking about murder, but you don't have to go very far in the New Testament where murder is pretty clearly something you shouldn't be doing. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't even be in speaking evil of somebody. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't even be gossiping. You see, the New Testament puts a finer grid on righteousness than the Old Covenant ever did. Someone says, well, New Covenant theology says that, you know, you're antinomian. I'm like, I beg to differ. There's a thousand plus uh, commandments in the New Testament we're supposed to be observing. That's way more than the Old Testament. The reality and fulfillment of these things, the substance, the substance belongs to Christ. The fulfillment of these things are found in Christ. It's what Hebrews 4 is all about. The true Sabbath is a Sabbath rest for the people of God that we have yet to enter into, but we're to strive to. And I find that a renewed interest in our day where people get taken up with Jewish customs. I want to go to a Jewish Seder, people will say. And I'm always just sitting there just going, ah, have you ever read Colossians? Do not get caught up in this stuff. It's gone. It's over. The Jewish tradition did what to Jesus? What did the Jews with all their tradition do? Where did he get them? They got them the phrase from Jesus in Revelation chapter 3. They say they are Jews, but they are not. Or a synagogue of Satan. Don't get caught up in those things. They will not give you any better relationship to understanding the Bible. Jesus is the fulfillment. And all that fulfillment, I mean, look at the book of Hebrews, gives you the example. Paul is saying, hey, all these festivals, new moon, Sabbath days, they're all fulfilled in Christ. The reality of the types and shadows and symbols is fulfilled in Christ. Celebrate Christ the way the New Testament presents him. You don't need the Jewish traditions because he even talked about traditions, didn't he? Traditions of men. Don't let anybody defraud you with this sort of false sense of spirituality, self-abasement, worshiping of angels, having vision, all things of which are people affirming their own imaginations rather than the revelation of Scripture. It all sounds spiritual, but it's really a perspective operating only on worldly principles. They're not holding fast the head 
Jesus, again, he has to be at the top of every list. And it's the entire body that we're dealing with. So it's in this sense that Paul says, if you've died with Christ from the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to him? Paul just, again, got this background. Jesus died and rose again, and he's reigning, and he's broken principalities and powers. Based on that, don't get caught up in Judaism. Don't get caught up in proto-Gnosticism or philosophy or New Age spiritism or any of those things. Stick with Jesus. Hold fast the head. He's the head of the body. If you've died with Christ, well, then why are you trying to get into all these spiritual things? I've sort of mentioned it before, but I remember before I became a Christian, I was, on, uh, I was into New Age stuff. And uh, there was rice diets to get your yin and yang straight. Anybody familiar with that? Yin and yang? That's out of the Eastern whatever, yin and yang. I never could figure out what it meant, but it just sounded good. And I figured, well, I'm a big mess, so maybe if I get my yin and yang straight, I'll even out. I'll sort myself out. So I've tried all these things or things like them. So I'd go on rice diets or fasting. If, if some book said fast for 10 days, I'd do it. And nothing ever happened. Because it was all just worldly principles. It wasn't participating in the life and death of Christ. It was just worldliness. If you've died with Christ, don't get involved in these humanly, I don't know, constructed spiritual things. They have appearance of religion, but they're false. So that's the book of Colossians in a nutshell. That's Christianity laid out. You get off in the weeds, go read that book. Get yourself sorted out again. So Paul says, don't let anybody judge you in in terms of Judaistic ceremonies. He says, don't get caught up in ascetic practices of the religion of that day or of this, which is to operate on worldly principles, but... If you've died with Christ, the way you deal with sin is through the power of his death, not yin and yang, rice diets, and so forth. And if you've been raised with Christ, well, that's the grand reality. If you've been raised with Christ. Paul has presented our union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection in the chapters that have gone before. And he says, if you've died with Christ, do this, have this perspective. Don't embrace false religious viewpoints or practices. Embrace things that are consistent with the realities of Christ. If you've been raised up with Christ. And here Paul engages with the power and the privilege of union with Christ in his resurrection and his exaltation. Remember our question. Is the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God central or peripheral to Christianity? The portrait of Christ has been presented in all the verses, the two chapters that are previous to this, is all-encompassing. 
Jesus is the eternal son of God's love. He's the firstborn heir of all creation. He's been victorious over all principalities and powers. He's brought us into a new covenant. We live in that new covenant and the dynamics of that new covenant and the permanency of the new covenant. It is the blood of an everlasting covenant. If you've been raised with Christ, that's the dynamic you live in. Raised with Christ. But is that as far as it goes, just raised with Jesus? Well, the if is rhetorical. If you have been raised with Christ. Basically, it means since you have been raised with Christ. If you're a Christian, this is true of you. You've been raised with Christ. There is no such thing as a Christian who has not been raised with Christ. It has an impact on our minds, our heart, and our life, and it's not dependent on us understanding it for it to be operative. Now, our understanding it is important to be a little clear and to be stable in our Christian life, When I didn't understand these things, I fell prey to every crazy idea that floated around because I was trying to figure out what had happened, how to do with things. I was in Pentecostalism, so I couldn't get any answers from them that made any sense. I'd try, try to understand. I'm like, I'm just not getting what you're saying. If you're a Christian, you've been raised with Christ. Paul assumes it. It's a present and foundational reality that is true of Christian experience. You've been forgiven, you're alive, you're raised. Do you look in the mirror and see yourself as that? It's not the result of joining a denomination. It's not the result of being baptized. It's not the result of doing any religious thing. It's the result of being born of God, period. When you're born of God, you are brought into this sphere of reality. Now, Remember the, the book, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? I only, I see the movies. I'm not, not a book reader on those kind of things. I saw the movie, and in the movie, they kind of, what, here's this closet, really just, just a nothing-looking closet, right? Not much to the closet, and somehow they push their way through, and they find on the other side of this closet is what? An entire world. That's Christianity. Before you're saved, you're looking at Christianity, you see it as the old closet. It's like, what could be in there? It's stuffy and kind of looks dilapidated. But then you push your way through and you become a Christian. And what do you find out? The whole universe opens up. The whole realm of the spiritual world opens up. You become alive in Christ. Now, You don't have to believe any certain doctrine for that to happen other than believing on Jesus. When I got saved, I had no clue that Jesus was the eternal son. Someone say, well, I'm gonna question yourself. You question all you want. I was saved. I know know I I was dead and God made me alive. Now, you know, as time went on, I learned those things. But I didn't know them when I first got saved. If you had said, is Jesus the son of God? I would have said, I guess that sounds like something I've heard. But whoever he is, I've believed on him and I'm trusting him to fix me because I'm one broken soul. 
And when someone told me he was the son of God, this Holy Spirit bore witness alive in my heart. I just believed on Jesus and there was not a lot of content to it. There was a lot of recognition on my part that I was dead in sin. I use those words now. I didn't know those words then, but I knew what it was. So you don't have to be all articulate to be raised up with Christ. You don't have to even know that you've been raised up with Christ to be raised up with Christ. It's a reality that is based on what God does in you. When I started understanding it, I fell prey to this version of things where, well, now that you have some understanding, now you're going to become a jet-propelled Christian because now you're really going to know and somehow I'm going to have now, you know, like, now I don't have to have a Romans 7 struggle. Didn't know it was a Romans 7 struggle. Couldn't have told you that. All I knew is I had it, and I wanted to get over it. I'm like, ah, you know, I've, I've repented toward God. If I even use those terms. I'm not doing the things I used to do, and I'm doing the things I didn't used to do. And whoever Jesus is, whenever anybody talks about him, I am filled with the Spirit of God, and I couldn't even told you that was happening. It was just happening. Because the work of God in redemption is sovereign. And when he saves someone, he brings them out of the power of darkness and into a real kingdom of God. That's how it works. You learn about it as you move on. You learn more about it so you can be more stable as a Christian and again, not fall prey to a bunch of crazy ideas, even your own. The more you learn about it, the more faith you have, the more stable you become. You're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But it begins with a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, raising us up with Christ. Oops. This is the heart and soul of salvation. It may need clarification, but all who are saved experience it, and all must live it. Now you can try for a while as a Christian to not live like it. It doesn't work. Anybody here find that out the hard way? I did. It doesn't work. You're a fish out of water. You're off in the weeds and God says, okay, now I'm bringing you back. And sometimes you've got to pay for that weed journey. But nevertheless, God brings you back. All experience, all must live it. And this is why anybody who says that there's a multi-tiered experience of Christianity is illegitimate. Everybody's been raised up with Christ. It's not just everybody's been forgiven or everybody's been saved without content to that term. Everybody has the same identical Christian experience now, the Christian life may vary, their giftedness may vary, but the same foundational Christian experience, you get united to Christ, that is salvation. Comes by faith. Faith alone. So when someone f comes along and says, you know, there's such a thing as a carnal Christian. You can have someone who's saved, but really isn't living like a Christian. It's because, well, you know, they're just a carnal Christian. Uh-uh. No, not a. That's just a false view of salvation. See, folks like to have that fifth point of Calvinism without the other four. And they call it once saved, always saved. And then 
they like to think that salvation is decisional. If you decided for Jesus, you're saved. Not if you've been born of God. Not if you've been united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection in your heart. That's not the definition. The definition is you decided for, definitions you decided for Jesus. But when you don't live like you've been saved, then they say, okay, well, we have to make a little category for all those people who have professed to be saved but really aren't acting like they're saved, and we'll call them carnal Christians. Now, there's a hundred different versions of that. There's lordship salvation. When I had to sort of wrestle with and figure out baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Steve, you've got the Holy Spirit and we don't really articulate things well. So we didn't tell you that you've been raised with Christ and you're seated with him in the heavenly places. But even if that's true, you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places at the right hand of God, but I'm not baptized in the Holy Spirit? Really? How absurd is that statement? And Christians everywhere, because they do not have a depth of understanding of what salvation is, they get caught up in these winds of doctrine everywhere because they don't understand you've been raised up with Christ. That is essential, foundational, core Christian experience. Without it, you're not a Christian. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. Look at look in Acts. I mean, Peter says, Jesus has two things. You see this Pentecost here, this baptism in the Holy Spirit? That's because Jesus is at the right hand of God, and so are you. And that's because Jesus has been given the Holy Spirit to pour out and distribute. They're not two separate things. They're two aspects of one thing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second work of grace is invalid. Gifts of the Spirit are valid. You see, folks get that all mixed up, and they think, well, how can you all believe in Pentecostalism? Well, I really don't. I just believe in the gifts of the Spirit. That doesn't make me a Pentecostal. A Pentecostal is someone who believes in the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second work of grace. That's a Pentecostal. And a lot of conservative folks just throw it all in one pot and get all mixed up and don't really know how to sort that out. But when you live among them, you see it. And that's why I can believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but do not embrace Pentecostalism. Because when I got saved... Little did I know that I was set free from sin in the death of Christ, made alive in my union with Christ in his resurrection. I was raised up with him, and I was seated with him at the right hand of God. Didn't know that for a long time, but I sure was living it and experiencing it. So the question for you this morning is not how much do you know about Christianity, how much have you experienced a faith in Christ and being made alive unto God in Him? That's true Christianity. And it doesn't matter when that happened. If it happened last week, last month, this morning, or 52 years ago. The issue is, are you in Christ where you sit this morning? And if you are, Sing hallelujah. You're raised up with Christ. You're seated with him in the heavenlies, even though you can't explain it. I'll try one day to explain it, but I'll trip over my words like everybody else. You have to experience it. If you're here sitting here this morning and you're not, 
in Christ. You just know, like, man, you know, this, this being raised up with Christ sounds interesting, a little bit boring after a while. But I don't really know what he's talking about. Well, you should start thinking about where you're going to go when you die. One of Gwen's friends had her son just die. He's probably about 40, 45, around in there. On Wednesday, they were taking home movies of him and his daughter walking on the beach like there was going to be 100 tomorrows. This morning at 1 a.m., he died. Not in the plans, I'll tell you that. That's a real thing. Sin and death is our great enemy. So if you're not in Christ, start asking him. Say, Lord Jesus, you're the Savior of the world. Come save me. All right, well, that's it for this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne, and uh, Lord, we are just so glad that we don't need to know about being raised with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places. We don't need to know that to experience that. If our experience was simply based on what we knew, we'd all be so limited. Lord, we just come this morning and ask we would experience everything you have for us and that our understanding, as Paul prays, our understanding will catch up. We've all had our times when we've been tossed to and fro by winds of doctrine. It's not a fun thing. So Lord, establish us in the truth. But more than that, establish us in all of the life and the grace that is in Jesus that a human being can have in this present world. Lord, the love of Christ that passes understanding, let that fill our souls, our bones, everything about us, be in the very marrow of who we are. Lord, you are light and love, and those two realities would just fill us in every way. Transform us every day more and more into your image. Lord, give us a heart for sinners. Jesus, you came into the world to save sinners. That is still your heart. You haven't come in judgment yet, so you still, still are before the throne of your Father in heaven. You haven't sat down. You're not up there just doing nothing. You're up there interceding. You're up there running the show, and you're up there to save people from their sin, and we just pray you would do that. Lord, there are saints all over this world who lack clarity in things and are being tossed to and fro. Lord, just pray you'd bring clarity to them. It doesn't make the Christian life easier, but it does make it simpler. Lord, preserve your saints in truth. And Lord, there are saints right now who maybe yesterday they were walking down the road happy-go-lucky and today they're in jail and they're having to suffer for witnessing for you. They weren't expecting it. They weren't planning on it. They weren't even guessing it would happen. And now they've lost possessions. They've lost freedom and may even lose their lives. Lord, give them wisdom right now, the wisdom they need to answer their captors, to give a good witness, not to be frustrated, not to fear, not to panic, but just to know that this is what you've called us to be, witnesses to a present evil world, and it's an evil one, a really evil world. 
In America, we tend to not think it's evil because we don't have an immediate experience of it. We see the craziness going on around us. It hasn't taken effect yet, an impact in uh, our lives as Christians, but it will one day. That stuff's going to all filter down and it's going to bring us uh, to a place where we are going to be bearing witness. But that hasn't happened right now. And Lord, all over this world there are saints and pray you'd preserve them and bless them and keep them in every way. Lord, again, just pray for us. Pray for my brethren here. Pray, Lord, these words of Colossians will sink into us and we will look in the mirror every morning and just say, I am raised with Christ and I'm seated with him at the right hand of God. And that's the foundation of Christianity. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.